Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I will be your host for Minute 91. I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of various Movies by Minutes shows, but today, consider me the host of Dave Made a Minute, getting a little revenge on myself, which I will explain shortly. This is where my plans go out the window. Yes, first thing. See, I set out to approach my ten minutes of this show in ten slightly different ways, essentially taking them as if I were hosting each of my different shows. I'm not sure about the order just yet, so here are my shows in order of first release. Michael Myers Minute, Dave Made a Minute, Annihilation Minute, Mandy Sucks Minute, The Room Minute, Cock and Bull Minute, Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute. And by the time you were hearing this, Five Minute Arrival should also have started. But it has not yet at the time of scripting, so we have eight shows, ten episodes. The thinking starts. I have not seen the best years of our lives yet. As far as I know, if I have seen it, it was not recently, to be sure. The plan for Minute 91 is to go in blindly, like I made other podcasters do what they made a minute. Then, I think I will watch the film. Then, I will sort out how the other versions of me approach this thing. If you've heard me on Jim's previous group shows, Into the Night Minute and Hitchcock Minute, you know me as the guy who puts far too much research into every little detail on screen. For this Dave Made a Minute approach, this will be difficult. And honestly, I accidentally started the minute playing behind the window where I am typing, and there is no dialogue in Minute 91. I am doomed. We're doomed. I do not know what to do. This is bad. This is very, very bad news. Oh, my glasses. Okay. Crap. Okay. What do we do? What do I do? What should we do? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What should we do? Crap, crap. I don't know. I just said that. I'm sorry. What should we do? I don't know. What do we do? We die. Or we see what we have. First impressions. All I really know about this film right now is it is set roughly when it came out, right after World War II, and it deals with soldiers coming back from the war. In this minute, we've got a guy. For reasons that should become obvious soon, if you do not already get the reference, I will call him Johnny. And he has no hands. He has some strap-on hook dealios in their stead. And he is getting ready for bed with the help of, I am guessing, his father. He is smoking a cigarette the whole time, and there's a picture of a woman on the bedside table. An old flame from before the war, maybe. Did she promise to marry him after he got back, because signing up was the noble thing to do with World War II? And surely Johnny was a patriot and he did not get drafted, he volunteered. He wanted to go to the other side of the world and fight the big bad whomever. The Germans, the Japanese, maybe the Italians. Because it was the right thing to do. Back home, folks made sacrifices, rationed food, rationed certain textiles and other resources for the war effort. And maybe Corrine here from the photograph? I have no idea what her name is in the film just yet, or if she's even a character beyond this photo. This memory. This shadow of a life before the war, before... An explosion, right? He's out there, missing home, but confident in his training and in his purpose, and he is young, presumably younger than the actor looks too, I guess. Johnny is a teenager, and he feels like he is on top of the world, and going to war he is going to prove himself a man, if he is not already, with his work on the family farm, or in the local general store, or on his high school sports team. And it does not matter which sport, but it is probably football, or maybe basketball in the 1940s, and he is popular. He has his choice of girls. Or at least he used to. And there was Corrine, beautiful Corrine, who he vowed to make an honest woman of her one day, get her the requisite 2.5 kids, a dog, a white picket men's, and maybe she will sell Tupperware to the other ladies who live in the same suburb as her and Johnny. Or they will have a sewing club, 
And her kids will grow up happy and content because they live in America during the Cold War and everything is thriving if you are the right color and live in the right neighborhood and those kids will be too young to fight in Korea. But their son will fight in Vietnam. Their daughter might even serve as a nurse. Or will Johnny's and Korean's kids turn away from war? And while Johnny Jr. might get drafted, Kareen Jr. will have a fancy office job and or a college degree and maybe she will protest. Maybe she will see in her father every day the horrors of war and want to do everything she can to keep more war from happening. I do not know where this movie is set yet, but maybe little Kareen will end up at Berkeley, find herself in the middle of the civil rights movement, the free speech movement, the anti-war movement. Maybe she will turn radical even, and she will turn to violence, set bombs in police stations, or blow the heads off statues, except she will always flinch at her own violence, because she has grown up around Johnny and his hooks. Except she will not even do that, will she? Because she will not exist. Kareen Sr. is just a photo on the bedside table. When she saw Johnny come back from the war, still bandaged and suffering from battle fatigue, which they called shell shock in that last war, she was taken aback. She wanted to run right out of the VA center, or the local hospital. Or was he already home because someone somewhere thought convalescing with his family would help him along? And Kareen came by, and she still wanted to marry the man she remembered from before. Even though she had been told, had been warned, that he lost his hands, and maybe he is not the star quarterback or point guard she fell in love with. She imagines she can handle it. She imagines that it was not his hands on her in the back seat of his daddy's convertible at the drive-in theater that made her love him most. No, it was his kindness. How he was so strong, so capable. And she had imagined having so many of his babies because that is what her mother did before her and her grandmother before that. But then she saw him, saw the bandages, saw that old twinkle in his eye when he looked at her was gone. And if he had not been looking right at her, she would have turned and run and never had anything to do with him or the memory of him ever again. She approached. She tried to still herself. She tried to remember something better, something brighter. That time before the war. From Johnny Got His Gun, Dalton Trumbo. Quote, An electric candle was burning on one side of the bureau. In the corner of the room beyond the candle, Corrine was standing. Her waist was off lying on a chair beside her. She was wearing a slip. As he came in, she was twisted around and down a little toward her hip where her hands were trying to undo the fastening of her skirt. She looked up and saw him and just looked without moving her hands or anything. She looked at him like she was seeing him for the first time and didn't know whether to like him or not. She looked at him in a way that made him want to cry. He walked over and put his arms around her carefully. She leaned to him with her forehead against his chest. Then she turned away and went over to the bed. She pulled the covers down and climbed in, clothes and all. She kept her eyes on him all the time, as if she was afraid he might say a sharp word, or laugh, or go away. She made quiet movements under the covers, and then her clothes began to drop over the side of the bed from between the covers. When they were all on the floor beside the bed, she smiled at him. He started slowly to take off his shirt, not moving his eyes from her. She looked around the room and frowned. Joe, turn your back. Why? I want to get out of bed. Why? Something I forgot. Turn your back. No. Please. No, I'll get it for you. I want to get it myself. Turn your back. No, I want to see you. You can't, Joe. Get my robe. All right, I'll do that. In the closet. It's red. He went to the closet and got her robe. It was a thin little thing with flowers printed on it, and not enough to cover anybody, really. He took it over to the bed, holding it a little distance from her. Bring it closer. Reach for it. She laughed, and then reached out quick and snatched it from him back under the covers. She had to reach so far that he saw the curve of her breast. She laughed softly all the while she struggled under the covers, putting the robe on and pulling it down, as if she had played a great joke on him. Then she threw the covers back and jumped out of the bed and ran on her bare feet into the living room. He saw the bottoms of her feet as they whisked to the floor. They had two arches, one through the instep and another that crossed it, rising delicately in the ball of her foot and fading away toward the heel, 
He thought how beautiful her feet are, how strong and beautiful they are. She came back with a bowl filled with red geraniums. She took them over to a little table that stood in front of the window. She opened the window and then turned slowly around to face him. She was leaning against the little table, kind of hanging onto it with her hands at the same time. If you really want to see me, but if you don't want me to, I don't want to. She walked over to the closet and turned her back and slipped off the rope. Then she turned around, watching her feet all the time, and went over to the bed and slipped in between the covers. He turned out the light and took off his clothes and got into bed beside her. He threw his arms around her a little carelessly as if it were all an accident. She lay very quietly. He moved his leg. A little puff of air came up from between the covers and he could smell her. Clean, clean flesh and the smell of soap and sheets. He put his leg next to hers. She whirled to him and threw both of her arms around his neck and held him tight. Oh, Joe, Joe, I don't want you to go. End quote. She tried to hold it all in, but she could not. And when she started to cry and he barely changed his expression like everyone looked at him like a broken shell of a man these days and what did it matter anyway? She knew there was something wrong, something missing. It was Johnny's body she saw that day, but Johnny was gone. His eyes were different and he did not smile when he saw her. Or maybe he tried, but it just was not the same smile. It was not real. And maybe it never would be again. And how would he hold their kids without his hands? How would he show Johnny Jr. how to catch a football or hit a home run? And what if it was his hands on her body in the back seat of his daddy's convertible that she missed and would keep on missing forever? She kept it polite. She even came by a second time later that same week. And since then, they had only seen each other in passing down on Main Street. And maybe by now he has seen her on the arm of a new fella. A good guy he used to know who got out of the war on account of his flat feet. He would make a good husband for old Corrine. A good father for Junior and little Corrine. Second impressions. Details this time. As minute 91 begins, Johnny is hunched over by that bedside table. His hands do not just have singular claws, but pairs of claws, presumably triggered by a specific movement of his arm to separate and come back together. In 1812, for example, a prosthetic arm was developed where the hand could be manipulated by the opposite shoulder with a connecting strap. Johnny's split hook is not precise, but he can pick things up. He lights his cigarette on a tabletop lighter, from the looks of it a Ronson Queen Anne silver-plated table lighter. He wears a robe, so he has maybe already changed clothes at least once today. Or maybe he spent all day in this robe. In the corner of the room by the dresser is his army satchel, still full. On the wall above the window alcove hang a rifle and a bayonet. On the bedside table, a photo of a girl. Johnny's father waits patiently behind him, in trousers and undershirt, suspenders up. He wears glasses. His hair looks to be graying. Johnny unties the belt around his robe without help. His father is already moving behind him to assist. As he grabs the neck of the robe to pull it off Johnny, the angle changes, but not by much. We are closer, focused on Johnny and that cigarette. His father barely visible behind him, the rifle on the wall half-hidden. The process is slow, but it feels like this is not the first time. Right sleeve down and off. Left sleeve down and off. Johnny puffs on his cigarette. Right shoulder strap off. Left shoulder strap off. And this one has fallen down off the shoulder. Well, the two prosthetics are of different designs, and this one takes slightly longer. Johnny puffs lightly. The melancholy music lingers as his father leaves the frame to the left. Then it is the reverse. Right pajama sleeve on, and Johnny turns his head to watch and help. Left sleeve on without looking and his father lifts up the back of the shirt onto his shoulders, straightens the collar. It is quiet. It is intimate. Johnny sits down on the bed, not turning all the way from camera, his shirt still unbuttoned. His father sets his prosthetics on the chair by the window. 
Johnny lets out a big puff of smoke, like this is all he has left. His father approaches, head above frame, and he buttons Johnny's shirt. One button, then another. Johnny raises his head briefly. A signal. Familiar. Practiced. His father takes the cigarette out of his mouth, and we get a wider shot, and we can see another photo of old Corrine by the mirror on the dresser, and what looks like a sailor hat hanging on something on the dresser. Maybe Johnny wasn't in the army. Maybe it was the Navy. His father moves to put out the cigarette in an ashtray by the lighter, but the minute ends before it gets there. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert E.G. Black. Among my various shows, you can find me as the primary host of Dave Made a Minute. The podcast where a whole bunch of us are exploring the film Dave Made a Maze one minute at a time. The twist. Many of the participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. You can find Dave Made a Minute on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. I am particularly proud of that show's Instagram feed. Or you can go to lemmydrops.com for links for that show and all of my other shows, my guest spots, my Groundhog Day Project blog, and more. You can find The Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. So please join me here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.